Well, good morning. Thank you for that. You can be seated. I appreciate those kind words. It's a blessing to be here today. Have you take your Bible. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. And uh, as you turn there, uh, I want to share with you a little bit of uh, what we hope to accomplish this morning. Did you ever have your parents say something like this to you? Why don't you just grow up? I'd look at my parents when they'd say that, and I would think, it's, it's your fault. You're five foot six and four foot 11. The odds were stacked against me, okay? Sometimes they would say this, why don't you act your age? You ever thought about how ambiguous that is? In the greatest generation that ever lived, as we sometimes refer to them, 18-year-olds were being shipped across the world to fight for our freedom. Today, 30-year-olds are single, sitting in an apartment, gaming throughout the whole night. What does it mean to act your age? I don't know if we have a definitive standard, but I can say this. When somebody says those kind of concepts to us, what our practices at the moment isn't meeting their expectations for us. And they're trying to challenge us to take the next step. And this morning in the book of Hebrews, the writer is doing the same thing for us. I was watching a, uh, a documentary last night with my wife. It was interesting. I didn't plan on watching it. I, I was just doing a little bit of research and... And I, and I found myself intrigued by this 45-minute documentary, and I watched all of it last night. My wife and I just sort of sat there. It was sort of amazing. We begin to hear the story about a, uh, a gentleman named Nick Freeman. Nick's 50 years old. He's older than I am, born in 1970. And Nick, for all practical purposes, you would expect him to be married. You would expect him to have children that are your age. But if you were to find Nick today in Western Australia, you might see him on the playground, sitting in a swing, and his mom pushing him. And you wouldn't think, there's a 50-year-old man. You'd walk by and you'd think, oh, there's a mom and her 10-year-old son. He never aged. He's a 50-year-old man in a 10-year-old body. If you were to go to Billings, Montana, you would find a young lady born in 2005. She's 16 years old. You would expect her to maybe get excited about shopping, because I have five daughters, they all get excited about shopping. You might expect her to be excited about driving. You might be thinking that she should be talking about what college she would attend. But instead, she's thinking about being fed every three hours with a bottle and a high chair and the body of a two-year-old. She's just never aged. When I was 16 or 17 years old, uh, my dad was mentoring me. I, I'd surrendered to preach. My dad was a pastor. And, and so he said, son, we need to go to the funeral home, and I want you to go with me. And, and no 17-year-old gets excited about going to the funeral home. Yes, dad, I, I was hoping that we could do that today. In fact, I was just talking about that in school today. No, that wasn't, that wasn't it. We were visiting somebody that had passed away in our family, in our church, and we're visiting the family there. And he just said, just be quiet and watch. I said, I can be quiet sometimes. And we did our rounds, and as we were getting ready to leave, in the parlor next door to us, there was a family that uh, just a lot, of, a lot of tears, a lot of crying. We didn't know them. My dad uh, said, hey, son, uh, as a pastor, uh, here's an opportunity for us to minister to some people. And again, just follow me. Don't say anything. Uh, and just do what I do. Yes, sir. So we began starting at the back of the parlor there, shaking people's hands, uh, offering words of encouragement. How can we help? Would you need someone to pray with you? These kind of things, eventually just working our way to the front. And as we got to the front, there's a small casket there. And my dad asked the obvious question, 
how old was your baby? And I still remember as a 17-year-old hearing the words of that mom through tears. He was 18. We thought we'd misunderstood, and so we thought maybe 18 months. And so my dad asked, the so just about a year and a half, uh, no, sir, 18 years old. He never grew. Something in the pituitary gland, something that science, they don't even have a name for it. 18 years old, and his parents had loved him since they brought him home from the hospital, fed him, changed diapers, all of that for 18 years. So an amazing story. Sad. But when we see that in the physical world, we think something's abnormal there. We know what's missing, maturity. There hasn't been any physical maturity. And while sometimes we're quick to spot that in the physical world, the writer of Hebrews wants to help us to spot it in our own lives in the spiritual world. And so he's inviting us to go on to spiritual maturity. Turn your Bible to Hebrews chapter number 4. That'll be our text. A few verses I'll look at as we get ready for Hebrews chapter number 4. But the key phrase in the book of Hebrews comes to us from Hebrews chapter number 6, verse 1. It's sort of the key verse to the book. The writer says, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Let's go on to maturity. I love the expression, let us go on. Here's what the writer is saying. I'm taking a journey towards spiritual maturity, and I'd like to invite you to take the journey with me. I know where I'm going. God has given me direction in my life. I can help you if you'll come with me. Let's take this journey together. Why don't all of us go on to maturity? I'm working that way. I'm going that way. I haven't arrived. I'm going towards spiritual maturity. Come take this journey with me. And so he says, let us go on unto perfection. It's an exhortation. It's a challenge. It's, hey, this is what we need to do. I want to encourage you. Don't be content to be a baby Christian. Sometimes in churches, we'll hear somebody who'll say something like, I've been saved for 40 years. But 40 years as a Christian doesn't necessarily mean 40 years of spiritual growth. They're not equated. I've seen many people that are in their 70s or 80s, and they're immature Christians. And God has called you to impact the world. That's why you're here. There's something in your heart that says, I want to change this world. It's getting bad. It's getting worse. And I have the gospel being entrusted to me. And God, I want you to use me to impact this world for you. And the only way that happens is if we continue to grow in spiritual maturity. By way of introduction, the writer gives us five passages in this book that are exhortation passages or warning passages. They're saying, hey, I'm going to keep encouraging you, keep challenging you to go on to maturity. But I also want to give you the, 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 the other side to that. If you don't voluntarily decide to grow, if you don't voluntarily say, you know what, I want to take that journey with you, God has other ways of motivating us to maturity. And in those five warning passages, those five exhortation passages, the other method is chastening. My life verse as a teenager comes from Hebrews chapter number 12, where it says, now no chastening for the present seemeth joyous, but rather grievous. That was my life verse. Uh, my dad would often say, hey, son, we need to have a come to Jesus meeting. And in my mind, I could picture the organ starting to play or the, or the piano starting to play just as I am. And, uh, and my dad and I walking to a private place to have a friendly discussion. He did most of the talking. <laughs> we called them in, the, in Georgia, we called them come to Jesus meetings. My mom would help me come to Jesus as well. My grandmother, who's in heaven today, 
I don't know that she was ever delegated the authority, but she took it upon herself to also help me come to Jesus many times as well. And we had many of those uh, fun meetings as well. My granddad as well. No chastening is joyous. It's grievous. But afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of reward. And, and God brings us to maturity. In Hebrews chapter number 7, still by way of introduction, the writer begins to tell us in this book some ways that will not bring us to spiritual maturity. They're the wrong avenues. They, they don't work. And sometimes we try them anyway. We think we're the exception, and we're going to make it work. And God's already told us in his word, this will not help you get to spiritual maturity. In Hebrews chapter number 7, verse 18, there's verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, and by the which we draw nigh to God. I want to say as a, by way of introduction, the first statement, legalism doesn't produce spiritual maturity. It might produce outward conformity. It might produce an external veneer, but it will never produce spiritual maturity. By legalism, sometimes that's a buzzword. Here's all I mean by it. Divorcing God's law from its original intent. When God gives the law as a mirror to show us our sinfulness, as long as we use it that way, we're using it according to God's purpose. But when we think using it in a way to help us to be spiritually mature... We're using it in a purpose it never intended to. The law doesn't bring that kind of hope. It doesn't bring us to perfection. It can't. It's weak. It's unprofitableness. And God says, that's not the purpose for the law, but I have a better hope that will bring you there. I love verse 25 or 24. This man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Talking about Jesus. Unchangeable priesthood. He doesn't transfer it from one person to the other because he's always alive. And because he has that kind of a priesthood, He's able to save us to the uttermost. The expression means he's able to save us to completion, to perfection. He's able to bring us to maturity. There's a second avenue sometimes people try, and it doesn't work either. And that's found in chapter number 10. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered make the comers thereunto perfect. Spiritual sacrifices don't produce maturity. If our statements of, or something like this, I gave all of that up to serve God, that doesn't produce maturity. Sometimes that's a statement of pride. We haven't really given anything up. It's a blessing just to be able to serve him. We deserve so much worse. And God has loved us and called us and given us the opportunity to serve him with our life. How great is that? This is what God is doing. And spiritual sacrifices doesn't produce, it ought to be a result of maturity, but doesn't produce it. And the, the writer argues, if it would have done that, if it could have brought them to that point, then they would have just ceased offering them. Because if the worshippers once purged would have had no more conscience of sin, but that wasn't the purpose. In Hebrews 7 through chapter number 10, here's what the writer does. He grounds our spiritual maturity, our growing in grace, our sanctification, whatever term you want to use, the writer grounds it and the priestly prayers of Jesus Christ for us. You and I can grow to maturity because of what he has done and is doing for us. So here's the thoughts from Hebrews chapter number 4. How do I apply it? How do I appropriate what Jesus has done on my behalf? He prays for me. He makes intercession for me. Of course, he's died for my sins. His death is the basis of my justification. His prayers are the basis of my sanctification. How do I appropriate that? 
In Hebrews chapter number four, the writer gives four invitations to us to go on to maturity. I want to give you these four statements from Hebrews 4. And then I want to ask you a question. The writer is inviting us to go on to spiritual maturity. So what I'm doing this morning is I'm inviting you to make one commitment that will help you get to the next step. I'm not asking you this morning to walk out of here looking like Jesus, perfectly glorified. <laughs> the only way that's going to happen is we're going to die. And that would not be a great invitation. Okay. Who wants to die today? We have somebody standing out there to help you with that decision. No. That's not, a, that's not the decision we're after. But what can help us in the next step? I wish I could take you back to where I grew up. I grew up in the country. Our country church had about 50 people. Our youth group was me, my two sisters, and my cousin. There was no dating allowed in our youth group. That was our youth group. And a lot of our church was family or friends of family. We, we never heard of soul winning, never even heard that term. We didn't know what that meant. Didn't even, didn't even have a point of reference. We'd heard some people were trying to get the gospel out. We thought that was a good idea. And, and I can still remember as a 10-year-old boy how we one time tried to get the gospel out. <laughs> it's, I hate to even tell you the story, but here's what we did. We, we had these big boxes, and we had a helium uh, tank, and we blew up helium balloons, and we attached tracks to them. And then we prayed over the box, and then we released them. And we asked God to carry them to whoever needed them. <laughs> Did you have a great response? Didn't hear a thing back. <laughs> no crows, no ravens, nothing like that ever came to our church and was baptized. We didn't know any better. When I went to Bible college, I started hearing people talk about being a personal soul winner, a personal witness, and they said, you ought to, you ought to, you ought to join the bus route. So I did. I joined the bus route, and I wore my only suit to go bus calling. And everybody else didn't have a suit on there. Like, what are you doing? I said, well, this is church, right? No, this is bus calling. Okay. So I shouldn't have worn a suit? No, you shouldn't have worn a suit. Came the next morning. I said, now it's church. I got my suit on. And nobody else had a suit on. And I'm like, was I not supposed to wear my suit? You'll understand why after the ride, Mike. You don't wear your suit on the bus route. Uh, you'll be dirty when it's over. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, but it's the only suit I have. And so we started a bus route. And God does a work in your heart as you begin to see people where they're at and their need for Christ. This past Sunday, our daughter Carly rode the bus for the first time. She went out bus calling on Saturday. She's on the bus route with Brother Eric Lee in our school. And she was so excited Sundays when some of the people she talked to on Saturday came. And God was doing a work in her heart. They have a little bit of advantage, a head start on where I was. I say all that because sometimes you, you look at your instructors, your administration, you think, well, they were probably born that way. <laughs> no, we weren't. It's been a journey. And if you would have said to me in Georgia when I surrendered to preach that one day I would live in California, that one day I would travel to different continents, I would preach to so many churches and so many different people, and I would teach thousands of people in Bible college, I would have just said, I don't even like to get in front of people. That just seemed too big of a journey. But here's what the leaders in my life said. Mike, what's the next step? What's the next step? Don't focus on where, because if you focus out there, it's going to scare you. You won't get there. What's the next step? And so this morning, I just want to challenge you to take the next step. And there's four decisions we have an opportunity to make. Look at verse number one. Hebrews chapter number four, he says, Let us therefore fear, 
Lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it or miss it or, or miss the mark or not actually make it and reach your full potential. Here's the first commitment we need to make. First decision we got to consider. Our responsibility, if we want to appropriate God's invitation to go on to maturity, what we have to decide is, you know what? I am going to, number one, fear God more than men or failure. Fear God more than men or failure. The fear of men is a snare. And it hinders us sometimes from maybe following everything God wants us to do. The fear of failure keeps us from doing a faith step. <laughs> I remember when I tried out for our high school basketball team. I didn't want to. I enjoyed playing basketball. I played in our neighborhood all the time, but I was scared to try out for our, our high school team. And they were like, Mike, everybody makes it. And, I'm, and then my mind's like, I'm going to be the only one who doesn't. But Mike, it's a Christian school. Everybody, everybody makes it. I think it's in the bylaws. They can't, they can't tell anybody they can't make it. And I said, I'm still going to be the exception. There's going to be something, there's something wrong with me. And I had all these reasons why I couldn't do it. And then uh, basically they told me I had to. <laughs> this is your PE grade or something. I don't know. But, so I signed up and went out and I loved it. I'm so glad I did. But there was that, that moment where I was just afraid I wouldn't make it. I've watched our kids as they've done their first piano recital. And I don't know who's more scared, me or them. And I'm like, oh, Lord, please, please let them make it through this. Please, please. I feel like, I feel like, I feel like I'm the one performing, and I'm, I, I'm not. We've had kids that have sang on the platform, and we're like, oh, no. I'll just keep my head. Lord, even so, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord. If they miss the word, that's a great time for the rapture. Right there, Lord. Now, now. And you just, sometimes that fear of failure is so real. And it keeps you from stepping out by faith. And yet we know from the book of Hebrews, without faith, it is, say it, it's what? It's impossible to please God. Not difficult. Impossible. If I were to ask you this morning, how many of you want to please God with your life? Every one of us raised their hand. I want to please God. I want to please God. The only way we do that is by walking by faith. But the fear of failure will keep us from taking that step. So the writer here says, let us therefore fear. I want to invite you to have a godly fear, that you fear God and him alone. Wesley said, if you give me a hundred men that fear God and nothing else, no one else will change the world. I believe that's still true. People who fear God and him only. There's a second commitment here in verse number 11. He says, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Here's the second commitment, the second decision, our responsibility to appropriate God's work on our behalf. We have to commit to follow God's word to find rest. He says, let us labor. The idea is being diligent. It's being eager. It's being zealous. But what's the focal point of that labor? Verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful. You're called to serve the Lord in a day that's hectic, frenetic, <laughs> frantic, <laughs> anxious, hurried, people going to and fro. They're busy everywhere. And no one seems to rest And sometimes we're not careful. It affects Christians as well. And God says, I want you to have rest. Come to me and find rest. You're, 
I have rest for you. And where does that rest come from? By imbibing the truth of God's word. We choose to follow truth over tradition. We, we choose to follow truth over the world's philosophies. We choose to follow truth over culture. We say, Lord, I'm going to be diligent to know your word. And not just the word of God, the God of the word. Because by knowing you and what you've said, it provides rest for my soul. Did you read God's word this morning? We can't assume that just because we're in Bible college, we have a personal walk with God. I didn't. I didn't when I was in college. Dr. Rasmus, did you remember John Pinchak? John Pinchak was probably six foot three, six foot four, red hair. We nicknamed him the Christian Nightmare. On his better days, we nicknamed him the Gentle Giant. You never knew which one of those two you were going to get. But I didn't know this about John. He read his Bible every day. And I knew this about Mike Lester. He didn't. And I knew I should. And I knew I wanted to. But I was struggling with developing that habit. And I'd ask different guys in my dorm, hey, would you keep me accountable? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what Christian friends are for. And they'd ask me once and then forget. Hey, I need a new partner. Yeah, I can do that for you. And they'd forget. So one day I asked John, oh, I'd count it an honor. Iron sharpening iron. I'd be, I'd be happy to do that for you. I think happy was not quite the right word. John lived for it. <laughs> He'd see me in the hallway changing classes. Hey, Mike! He, he towered over everybody. I didn't. <laughs> hey, Mike! Yeah, John? Did you read your Bible today? Not yet. Oh, Mike, 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 come step out here on this, this back porch here right above these stairs, and, and we'll sit here for a minute. I'll watch, and I'll, I'll make sure nobody comes out and disturbs you. Let's get something from the Word of God, even if it's just a chapter. Mike, we've got to read God's Word. You asked me to ask you. Yeah, I didn't mean so public, John, but yeah, yeah, I did ask you. And then uh, another day, hey, Mike. Hey, John. Did you read your Bible? It's in front of everybody. Uh, I was going, no, not going to. Have you read it? No. Come here, Mike. Every time, every time John Pinchek saw me, he asked me. Every time. I wanted to avoid him, but I couldn't. We're a small campus. <laughs> but knowing John was going to ask me, I determined one day I was just going to be able to say, as a matter of fact, I have. So I tried that route. Yes, sir, I did. What'd you read? Oh, I read, but I worked third shift. John, I don't really remember. Mike, if you didn't remember, it doesn't count. That counts for something that doesn't count. Get out here and read. Okay, so... <laughs> I was closer, but I wasn't quite there yet. But the day came where I said, yeah, John, I, I read, and, and here's what I read this morning. Here's what God showed me. Oh, Mike, that's awesome. And I thought, okay, you'll leave me alone. But John knew that habits weren't developed in one day. So he continued asking me. And after a couple weeks where I every day was saying, as a matter of fact, yes, I have, John said, that's great. I'm going to back off a little bit and maybe ask you just once a week. I said, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And you don't have to be so public about it if you don't want to. God understands. I don't know where John is today. I have no idea. But I know he helped me. I know he helped me. I think I've read the Bible somewhere between 50 and 60 times now. But I didn't come out of the womb reading the Bible. <laughs> Somebody helped me. Somebody said, Mike, you've got to labor in the Word of God. You said God's called you to preach. What are you going to preach if you're not reading the Bible? The world isn't interested in your ideas. You've got to get in the Word of God. Not just so you can have a sermon, but so you can know God. How else are you going to know him? He challenged me. Follow God's word. God has a rest for you, and you find that rest in his word.
There's a third principle here. In verse number 14, Seeing then we have a great high priest that's passing into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Our profession, our confession, our testimony. Let me say it this way. Fasten hold to a good testimony. Fasten hold to a good name. You want to grow in spiritual maturity? Decide you'll fear God and no one else. You want to grow in spiritual maturity? Determine that this Bible isn't just the letter B in Baptist distinctives. The Bible is our final source of authority, but actually live it. The Bible is our final source of authority in matters of faith and practice. Commit to it. And then thirdly, commit to this idea of fasting hold to a good name. And it works two ways. Number one, we have the name of Jesus. We are the only representation of Jesus Christ that some people will ever see. Whatever they think of Jesus is being determined by what they see in us. God help us that they get a right picture. There's a name there that wants to be protected. My dad was always a hard worker. Always a hard worker. Still a hard worker today. He's in his 70s. Still a hard worker. And he's always bivocational. Still bivocational today. He had his own construction company. And when I was 12 years old, he said, Mike, you want to you know what it's like to be a man, or do you want to stay home this summer with the girls? Well, that's, a, that's sort of a loaded question, isn't it? Like there, that's, like, that's like asking somebody, have you stopped beating your wife yet? There's really no right way to answer that question. Either way you answer it, it's wrong. It's a setup question. And so the only obvious answer to my dad was, you know, I'd, I'd love to go to work with you, Dad, all summer. That would, that's exactly how I had planned to spend my summer, working in construction. How did you know? <laughs> And he said, I'm going to pay you. Great. That's awesome. I could use some extra money. I remember our first paycheck. Everybody's getting their paychecks, and my dad's, I'll, I'll pay you yours later. No, oh, okay. We got home. I'm still waiting. He said, why don't you come back in here? Okay, all right. Now, Mike, before I give you this paycheck, I want to remind you of something. I do cover all your meals. I know where this is going. And, and I do provide you a place to live rent-free. I'm 12. <laughs> So this may not exactly be minimum wage, but it'll be, it'll be a help to you. Thanks, Dad. It's a big help. But I do know this. He taught me to work, and he taught me to protect the name Lester. As a teenager, when friends were trying to maybe tempt me to do something I knew my parents wouldn't, wouldn't approve of, often what I would envision was a disappointment on my parents' face if I'd have done that. And I want to have a good name. When I was 16 or 17, my dad sold the business to a guy that he had led to Christ, and he was going to go full-time with the church. We were so excited. And this guy uh, that he sold it to, it was all, my dad's a man of his word. He shakes your hand. That's, that's all it takes. Well, that works when both people have that philosophy. The other guy didn't. The pressure got too much for him, and one day he just bailed, moved to Florida, took my dad's equipment, took his ladders, took a lot of things, and didn't even tell anybody he was gone. My dad's just still passing the church. <clears throat> Until the phone calls came. Hey, notice you missed your bills. Notice this, this. And my dad uh, had basically, because it was still in his name legally, was now uh, in debt $20,000 to different paint companies in Georgia. 20000 He had me go with him. We met with those different uh, sales reps and their bosses. And he says, look, here's what happened. You know me. We've worked together for 20 years. You know my testimony. I'll pay it back. Let's work something out. I'll pay it back. 
I forget how many years it took, but I remember the day my dad came to me and said, hey, Mike, just want you to know, it's paid. What's paid? Remember when we took that trip to those paint companies? Yes, sir. Done. I don't know how many sermons I heard my dad preach. I grew up, I mean, I got extra sermons because I lived in a preacher's house. I don't know how many sermons I preached. I can't remember many of them, honestly. I really can't remember many of them. But the sermon he preached with his life affected me. This good name. You want to go into spiritual maturity, you've got to protect the name of Jesus and you've got to protect your name. A good name is rather be chosen in great riches. There's a final element here. Verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. We may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You want to go on to spiritual maturity? Maybe the commitment you need to make is just to determine, I'm going to fall at the throne of grace continually. I love the fact he invites us to come boldly, not timidly. I have some bold kids. You know my kids. You've seen them around in the GA. They just walk up to you like they own the place. And they want to tell you their life story. I, I can remember we had uh, some couples over. We normally fellowship with singles. We had some couples over to fellowship with. And I forget the occasion. There was five or six couples at our house, plus my wife and I. We're sitting in our living room. Megan, our oldest daughter at the time, was four or five. And one year for her birthday or Christmas, she asked for a podium. That's what she asked for. I would like a podium. God wants me to be a teacher. <laughs> okay. So we, we had a podium built for her. Still in our garage today. Well, we're, we're fellowshipping with these people. And here comes Megan at four or five years old, dragging her podium into our living room, says, can I have your attention? It's time now for our Bible story. <laughs> just bold. And they humored her. Oh, we, we'd like to hear the Bible. And so she opened her Bible, and she shared her heart with us that day. I think she preached to us. Uh, there was just a boldness there. If we're not careful, sometimes we lose that. We lose it. And God gives us an invitation to come boldly and specifically to a throne of grace. And there's mercy there. There's grace there. God's mercy and God's grace are in overabundance. He has more than enough. Do you have a need? His grace is greater than your need. God invites us to take this journey with him on to spiritual maturity, on to perfection. God desires for us to go into spiritual maturity sometimes more than we even desire it. He's wanting us to grow to be more like him. He's already done his work on our behalf. He's asking us to appropriate that. And this morning, there's four opportunities for us to make a decision. Perhaps a decision we need to make is, you know, I need to fear God. It's not fear God and, whatever that and is, and that needs to be subjugated under God and him alone. I need to fear God because that's who I serve in my life. I need to fear God. Maybe the commitment we need to make is to follow God's word, follow God's truth more than anything else. And it really is our final authority. Maybe the commitment we need to make is to determine we're going to hold on to a good testimony, fasten hold to a, a good testimony, a good name. Maybe we just need to have some reminders we need to fall constantly at the throne of grace. Whichever one of those decisions we need to make, I can tell you this, whichever one is the next step for you to go into spiritual maturity, would you take it? I've joked about the fact that I am not as tall as Dr. Rasmussen. I don't know if you noticed that. 
I think even standing on a platform, I may not be as tall as Dr. Rasmussen. My family is vertically challenged. My mom is four foot eleven. My grandmother was four ten. Uh, it wasn't looking good for our family. I remember when I was in sixth grade, I came home one day from school and I was just frustrated. Man, I was frustrated. It was one of those days when my parents were working and my grandmother was there to, to receive us and to sort of watch over us until our parents got home. And, and I came in and I was just, man, I was mad. And I was mumbling and my grandma said, what are you mumbling about? I am not growing. I'm the shortest person in the class. Uh, what, what was God thinking? Not the right words to say to my grandmother because she had a way of helping me come to Jesus to find out exactly what he was thinking. I said, Michael, go back to your room. I said, oh, great. The day's about to get worse. I went back to my room. She came a few steps behind me. She shut the door. I said, okay, brace yourself. Here it comes. And I'm sitting on the bed. So I try to start crying because maybe my grandma will have mercy on me. I'm so sorry, Grandma. I know God loves me. She said, I don't want to hear it right now. Oh, great. That's not working. Said, I want you to go up there and I want you to just put your hands on the door. Oh, great. Get up there as close to the door as you can, Mike. And I did. My eyes are closed. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready, Grandma. What I feel next is her hand on my head. This is weird. That's not normally how we came to Jesus. <laughs> so she got her hand on my head and then she's scratching on the door. My height. Go sit on the bed. And she writes the date underneath it. Come back up here. Here's where you were at this date. Here's where you were then. Here's where you were then. Here's where you are today. You know what I see there, Mike? I see growth. Your problem is you're comparing your growth with some other standard. Just be happy you're growing. I don't know what pace you're growing at spiritually. Just be content to be growing. And you'll find that you'll enjoy the Christian life much better.